Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, it's one of those names that most of us surely recognise, but let's be honest, we really don't have much of a clue about who he was. It's a name that can be found in just about every county in Britain. There are buildings named after him, pubs named after him, council wards, streets, schools. I even discover there's a horse race named after him. And actually, I'm quite ashamed to say that there's even this really old room at my son's school that's named after him. And even still, I, I've got to confess that I'm not super confident I could write even a half-decent GCSE history essay about him. So the man I'm talking about is a name you all know. It's John of Gaunt, a man who lived in the second half of the 14th century and seemed to absolutely dominate it. He was the son of a king. He held two dukedoms at least. He was a king himself, although not of this country, and he was even the father of a king. He was incredibly rich, he founded the House of Lancaster, was a great military leader, and knew a thing or two about statecraft. And what's more, he was even great mates with Geoffrey Chaucer, who you all know, I'm sure. Now, I think we all need to get to know this man better, and there is nobody better to help us than Helen Carr, the medieval historian, whose book about John of Gaunt, The Red Prince, is an absolute masterpiece. Helen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And you know what? I think you could even be more of an expert than I am because I had no idea there's a horse race named after John of Gaunt. So good research. <laughs> I don't know. I, well, I think you've got to, we're going to find out where it is and then you've got to go there and then you've got to put your money on all the horses. I think that's it. But th- <laughs> this is the point, isn't it? I mean, John of Gaunt, you were telling me, I, I'm, I'm going to drop you in it here. You were telling me that you went to the Savoy for lunch last week, lucky old you. But the Savoy, that's connected with John of Gaunt because that's one of his old sort of manors or, or, or palaces, isn't it? It was the main uh, Lancastrian power base in London up until 1381. And yes, it was his, his main residence in London. It was a very important residence. And he entertained the great and the good at the Savoy. And it was an incredibly opulent palace. It's actually funny that the Savoy Hotel is there in its place now because, you know, you've got this lap of luxury with the Savoy Hotel. Um, but yeah. the Savoy Palace in the 14th century was not dissimilar. <laughs> OK, so I mean, so actually that, that luxury is sort of kind of six, seven hundred years old. And, and, and does, the, does the present day Savoy have any kind of John of Gaunt bits and pieces in it? Or does it make any reference to its ancestry in that way? Yeah, there's a there's a mention of him on a plaque. But actually, he's sort of he's placed within the context of many other sort of great figures at the time. So it's like John of Gaunt lived here and Geoffrey Chaucer stayed here and then King John of France stayed here and the Black Prince. So it, it's all sort of, it sort of puts him within many others, but actually he was the leading figure who, who was resident at the, at the Savoy. And, um, you know, he was the, he was the Lord of the, of the manor, so to speak. I mean, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm asking about the Savoy is not just sort of kind of revealing your incredibly opulent dining habits, but it, 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 it's, <laughs> it, the, the, the point about it is, is that this is the point. He, he is this very sort of rich, powerful figure. He's in the background. It's a name everybody knows. And yet we don't really know enough about him. And so, you know, there's a plaque at the Savoy, there's a room at my son's school, there's his horse race, council wards named after him, you name it, pubs. So this this is the point. Everywhere you go, there's always seems to be a kind of John of Gaunt link. So can we just sort of spool back a little bit? And can you just give us an idea of who he was the son of and, and, you know, how he sort of fits into the sort of uh, the 14th century? 
Sure, and you're absolutely right. There's there's this sort of omnipresent legacy that John of Gaunt has, particularly in this country and everywhere. The whole of England is is peppered with all of these little reminders of John of Gaunt, but nobody really knows why. Who was he? Who was this person who is everywhere, but he wasn't, um, you know, King Richard or King Edward, which is usually, you know, you get schools yeah. and pubs and things named after the kings. So it's like, who well, who was he? Who was this powerful man? Well, John of Gaunt was the third surviving son of Edward III, and he was born at the start, very, very start of the Hundred Years' War. So Hundred Years' War started in 1337, and John of Gaunt was born in uh, 1340, and he was born just before the first big naval victory for the English at the Battle of Sluis, which uh, gave Edward III um, the English Channel, so to speak. So he won this great victory against okay, the so French. Okay, that, so that, that, that's big in itself, isn't it? So he's right at yeah. the, the, the forefront of this important thing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then as soon as this you know, this battle was over, Edward III went to greet his, his brand new prince. And John of Gaunt was born straight into a period of war. So this isn't war that you would imagine, you know, it wasn't like um, the Wars of the Roses where it was very, it was incredibly bloody and incredibly um, fractious. It was, it was a game of politics, but it was also a game of chivalry. So this was a period of jousting. Um, it was a time where the cult of, uh, of um, King Arthur and St. George was all brought to the brought to the table. This idea of national identity was created with the Order of the Garter, um, the idea around knighthood and chivalry and of what it is to be a chivalrous knight. And this is a mantle that John of Gaunt very much grew up with and continued through the, the rest of his life. So he did experience war with his father, but the Hundred Years' War was... Um, <laughs> people think it must have been a period of constant fighting, but actually it was largely the English going and trying to fight the French on French soil and the French hiding behind castles and the English then retreating because <laughs> they got hungry. Very sound. But can, can we just get... So, so the, of course, the word gaunt is... It, and, and again, another misconception about, about him is, is the fact that gaunt may refer to his sort of physical appearance. It doesn't, of course, does it? No, no, no. No, so he was... So princes tended to be named specifically after the place that they were born initially until they sort of got all of their accolades later on and titles. Sure. And John was born in Ghent, so he was born in Flanders. He was actually born in a period where the Queen was held as a sort of quasi-hostage because the King owed the Flemish merchants a lot of money. So she stayed in Ghent whilst Edward III had to go and persuade Parliament in England to lend him lots of money to pay back the Flemish and continue his war against France. So John of Gaunt was born in Ghent in the Abbey of St. Bavon while his mother was a... Um, a hostage, but in a in a sort of luxury scenario. So she was used as collateral for a loan. Uh, and so, but then, so he is born into captivity. Essentially, I think that yeah. yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of captivity and sort of um, human trade off going on at, at this point. But when people, when you say captivity, one would think it's a prison type environment, but it wasn't. I mean, King John of France was a captive of, in England for many years, and he had a great time. He just sort of got to sit about not ruling France and drink a lot of wine from Gascony. So, you know, Great. So he's, he's, got, he's got all the titles, but none of the hassle that go with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so John is what? So he is the, the third child, isn't he, of, 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 of Edward III. Is that right? He's the third surviving son of Edward III. Philippa gave birth around 13 times, which does sort of beg the question, you know, whether her husband ever actually left her alone. 
poor woman because um <laughs> she was nearly constantly pregnant but but she was a um she was a very maternal figure the the english people very much saw her as the mother of england um and she she perpetuated that identity throughout her life by having lots of babies so do we have a sort of an idea of what sort of child or young man that, that, that John was? I mean, you know, the fact that he ends up becoming this incredibly influential figure might suggest to me that he was, you know, he, he was he was a very sort of able young man. Was that right? Yeah, I think his ability was picked up by his father at quite a young age. So he was he was thrust into the limelight in his teens. And he was also from a very early age he was put into the care of his older brother, the Black Prince. So there were 10 years between them, and the Black Prince might be a figure that um, people definitely have heard of. He's another known, pub name. Uh, he, yeah. Another pub name, but also he's known for his, um, you know, was he black because he was fierce, or was he black because of the, the colour of his armour? So there's lots of different, you know, interpretations as why he was called the Black Prince. But the Black Prince was, was, the, was the son and heir of Edward III, and John of Gaunt was his little brother. And uh, even though there was another brother between them, the Black Prince and John of Gaunt were, were coupled together. And I think that that was done because they saw John was bright. He, had, he could go a long way, and the Black Prince was the natural figure to educate him. So he lived with him for a while. They would go hunting together. He learned how to fight under the tutelage of the Black Prince, and he had a tutor that was arranged by the Black Prince. So he had a princely education under supervision from his older brother. And that, that relationship and that respect and that education definitely comes through in the rest of his life. So in our period of monarchy, you know, younger sons and you know, younger siblings are, are cutting somewhat more problematic figures. <laughs> I just wondered then in, in this period in the 14th century, was someone who was like the sort of, you know, a little bit further down the line what were their roles clear was, was was the assumption was they were going to go and help run the kingdom somehow or take on a dukedom and then go and sort of crack some skulls in france was that the kind of assumption was that what he was born into yeah yeah exactly i think that um edward iii had a very ambitious plan and i think that his intention was to create a very european focused sort of plantagenet empire and so he wanted to place his sons in various different countries he wanted to expand out of England and create a very strong Plantagenet network into Europe and John of Gaunt definitely continued this into into his life which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about but his other mm. son Lionel was married into Italy I mean albeit for a very short period of time but um his intention was very much to make his sons powerful rulers in their own right or by right of their their spouse. And at one point, interestingly, and I think this is where John of Gaunt got a real taste for um, monarchical power, was when Edward III pegged him as a potential heir to the Scottish throne. So Right, so when are we know, talking was, now? How old would uh, John have been? He was point? 17 at this point. So, you know, quite, quite young. And he yeah. was thrust into the limelight to be the potential heir to David II, who was the son of, of, of Robert the Bruce. And obviously this is a period, you know, if you think back, I mean, everyone's probably familiar with Braveheart around that period and the, the Scottish Wars yeah. of Independence. You're talking 50-ish uh, years after, after um, the death of William Wallace. You've got Robert the Bruce on the throne and then you've got a couple of fairly incompetent kings after him. And um, that's when the English start to regain some more power over Scotland. And there's a part of negotiations and truce making. John of Gaunt was suggested as a potential heir 
uh, to the Scottish throne. So I think even though that never materialised, I think that did inspire a sense of his own majesty. Okay, so that must have that that must have felt like a bit of boost being select, you know, the idea of taking over a, a country. Oh, you know, thanks, Dad. That that's a, uh, that would give me quite a lot of confidence. So when do we see John first sort of, I don't know, sort of going into battle or becoming a kind of statesman in, in his own right? Yeah. So his first taste of battle was actually age ten. So he um, would not leave the side. Allegedly, would not leave the side of the Black Prince. Um, at the Battle of Winchelsea, which is an, was another naval battle against the Castilians, who were allies, allied to France. And this was fought off the coast of Winchelsea, hence the name. And John of yeah. Gaunt w- wanted to stay on board the ship of his brother. And so he was a witness to this quite fierce naval battle that went underway. And his he was on the boat with his brother, and his brother's ship nearly sank. And I can imagine it was all very... Um, terrifying for a 10 year old boy but also you know that's pegged by modern standards I mean I think it could have also been incredibly exhilarating and exciting for him and then his first taste of of war was quite a lot later um so he did go on a military campaign into France which ended up being a bit of a disaster and it was really just the, the English uh riding around France conducting what were called chevaches which is where you have a big party of um war horses charged through various towns and the countryside and torch the land um, and conduct raids on villages. And that was really very much what the Hundred Years' War was. We think of these big battles, but actually there were a couple of big battles. It was really just years of the English going and, and ravaging France. And that's, that's so what it looked like. It was a semi-organised like. banditry, wasn't it? I mean, it was a sort of skirmish. Yeah, yeah exactly. basically, yeah. But it was like guerrilla warfare. Um, you know, medieval style. That's exactly what it was like. And his first taste of war was exactly that, which failed outside the walls of Paris as they tried to get the king to come out and fight. And he just wouldn't, because he knew that by waiting, the English would eventually give up. And that's exactly what happened. So he was around 18, 19 when when this was going on. And would he have been leading a force like that or would he have been sort of attached to it as, I mean, you know, how how important was he? So at that point he was part of a force. Often when the English invaded France, they would invade with like this sort of three column approach. So they'd take three um, armies led by great lords. So either one column would be led by the king, the other the Black Prince, and then the third was would be by John of Gaunt's future father-in-law, Henry Duke of Lancaster, and they'd take this sort of three-pronged attack. So John of Gaunt tended to be with his brother, um, as did, as we can talk about, Geoffrey Chaucer. So Geoffrey Chaucer wasn't just a writer and a poet, but he was also um, he was also a soldier. Right. Okay. Well, we'll come on to come on to old Geoffrey a little bit later, if that's all right. Because I, I, but uh, yeah, I, and, there's a lot so to cover. Presumably, there's a lot, a lot to unpick with old John here. But so presumably, what we're seeing now, so throughout maybe his twenties and thirties, he he is largely he is basically a military man at his at his at his core. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. He is, and he goes into um, the politics of Spain and his future kingship, very much coming from this Hundred Years' War. Uh, angle so it comes through military conquest really okay so could you tell me a little bit so we 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 have a i think all have a reasonably good understanding that clearly sort of waging war in france and uh uh, was was a very popular thing to be doing at the time but how about this this him claiming being the king of castile how does this come about yeah and this is what i think makes him quite remarkable because he's just so ambitious i mean he's basically decides I'm I want to be king of Castile he's not willing to just 
have land that is granted to him through conquest. He wants to be king. Um, and tell me and quickly think, where know, Castile is. What 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 is sure. Castile? What would we identify as Castile today? So if you look at Spain today, Castile took up the big center of Spain. So you have Castile and Leon, and then you had Granada at the bottom. So this very, very south, far, far south yes. of Spain was Granada. So it was split into a series of kingdoms, basically. Then you have somewhere called uh, Navarre, which is sort of more towards the top. And then you've got Portugal and Aragon. So Spain was a real mixture of yeah. different kingdoms, but it was mostly Castile and Leon. So if you think of places like Valencia, uh, that would have been in Castile. Um, so it was the most of Spain. Okay, so he he feels he should be king of it, right? Yeah. So he this all came about from a from a one of one of the few and only uh, p- experience of pitch battle that he ever had, um, battles of the Hundred Years' War. So this happened happened with the Battle of Nehera. So to to put it very very briefly, Spain became a melting pot of dynastic and fraternal feuding that the English and the French kind of took hold of either side and tried to manipulate to create allies for themselves during the Hundred Years' War. So you had one brother wanting the throne and another brother wanting the throne. And so one brother went to the English, one brother went to the French. So effectively, the French and the English ended up having a battle on Spanish soil between the French and the English but but with the Spanish right. fighting each other, so that's kind of how it how it how it went. And this keep was up, everybody, keep up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is John of Gaunt's first experience of pitch battle. At which point he led the vanguard, which is the vanguard is the first line that goes into battle in the middle, the centre first line. So it's not on the flanks; it's right in the right in the middle. And that's a pretty cool position. You're kind of the one charging into this great medieval battle with your plated armour on and your horse and your mail and you're carrying your lance and your sword etc and he's leading the charge and his brother took the line behind him but he supervised him as the more experienced leader so it was his formative experience of battle it was his first experience as a brother in arms with his brother the black prince who he was very close to and it was a massive success they won this grand victory and they captured the constable of of France, Bertrand de Guéclin. And in the Hundred Years' War, getting a prisoner like that was like big money. Because if you could get a prisoner, you could charge a huge ransom. And that's where the whole ransom culture came into play within within this period. So that's why you'd get lots of wealthy Frenchmen living in England waiting for their family to pay off the ransom for them to go home again. (laughs) So does does he become King of Castile or is that disputed? Well, yeah, he's like a quasi-king, self-appointed. OK, but I mean, a bit more than me just saying I want to become the King of Scotland tomorrow. I mean, totally. you know, he's got some Yeah, right no, no, he does have some right to it. So the right comes through his second wife. So he marries the daughter of the deposed and murdered king of Spain, um, whose yep. brother, Enrique, is the one who ended up winning the, the fraternal feud I mentioned earlier. Um, so the deposed king um, has two daughters, and John of Gaunt decides that he should marry the eldest because that would, by her, give him the right to Castile um, to be, you know, inherit the throne. Because in this po- at this period, daughters would not inherit the throne to be a, to be a queen and a, and a ruler. The ruler in, would become her husband, and the land would belong to him um, rather than her. So he knew by marrying Constance, the oldest daughter, he would become the rightful heir to the to the throne of Castile. Um, if you're a fa- if you're a supporter of King Pedro, that is, 
And so this happens when he is in France helping his, his older brother, the Black Prince, to manage lands in France that are uh, owned by the English. And he is advised by these barons in France, allegedly, that, uh, you know, you've been, you've been widowed for a few years now. Uh, there's this daughter of King Pedro, and, you know, if you marry her, your heirs might have the right to rule Castile. And this is interesting because the chronicle that mentions this says, you know, that these barons are referring to John of God's heirs, but actually he goes, to, he sort of scraps the heirs bit and just goes, yeah, but what about me? And then he okay, so... marries her and goes, I'm now the rightful king of Castile. And he goes back to England and he creates this majestic court for himself filled with, with uh, Castilians a very continental court at the Savoy Palace. This is why the Savoy is very important. Yes, okay, hence your... And yeah. it's a very weird period in, in English history because you've effectively got two kings in England living... Is this creating friction? Family. Yeah, definitely. And I think the people in England don't really like it. They don't... They find it suspicious. I think that they're suspicious of his intentions for the throne of England. And, you know, bear in mind at this point... This is where John of Gorton has often been pegged as this sort of Richard III type scheming uncle um, because his his nephew, Richard, goes on to inherit the English throne. And um, that's Richard II. And that's when this, this shift in um, power dynamics starts to come out and they start to sort of clash with one another. And it's also where the Peasants' Revolt emerges. So, you know, one of the leading chants in the Peasants' Revolt is we will have no king named John and... There were complaints of having too many kings. And so he wasn't popular for for being king, a displaced king um, in England when there already is one. So, I mean, the figure that's emerging here is a man who's spending a lot of his time doing a lot of fighting. He's, he's amassing a huge amount of um, uh, power for himself. Um, he's not proving very popular in doing so. I suppose in the normal medieval way, he, he's marrying for personal gain rather than clearly out of so cute yeah. reasons such as love. You know, he's, he's setting up his own almost feels like, I know it's not technically a rival court, but it feels like it's an alternative court within southern England. He's being a real player, but at the same time, I know that these are not the times of people being able to sort of publicly <laughs> express huge amounts of, sort of dissatisfaction, but that clearly there are rumblings, as you say, the Peasants' Revolt and so on and so forth. So, you know, so he's quite a sort of contradictory figure in many ways. But, I mean, do you think, I mean, do you find him likeable? Do you, do, do you find him a sort of charismatic figure in any way? Or do you think that he was an out-and-out sort of bastard, if you like? <laughs> well, that's, that's the, the reputation that has been perpetuated through time, is that he is, he is like that. But actually... No, I think what's interesting here is his his ill reputation, his bad reputation comes really from London. He's mostly unpopular in London and the surrounding counties, the home counties around London. He is actually incredibly popular elsewhere in the country. He's a very, very good um, landowner and magnate and feudal magnate. He's very fair to his tenants. He's a good uh, manager of his lands and he respects the people who live on them. So during the Peasants' Revolt, for example, the people of Leicester, they rose up prepared to fight back against the, the rebels with their own pitchforks and um, and scythes and, and whatnot to defend John of Gaunt. And that's something that doesn't really get talked about, is actually he was really only unpopular in a very small area. And he was incredibly popular in Scotland, uh, in the north, 
So all of the lands that the Lancastrian ducal lands that he maintained, he was a he was a popular man, and I think that um, I think that his politics was feckless because he was a ardent royalist. He didn't like the amount of power and sway the merchant classes were starting to have in court politics, which they were because they had lots of money. So they were constantly loaning the king and the, and the parliament and the crown cash. And John of Gaunt didn't like how in exchange for that, they had a lot of say in what went on and how the country was managed. And he was unpopular with the church as well because he had quite reformist ideas. So he um, was a supporter for a time of John Wycliffe, who was the called the flower of the Reformation, who was this very early uh, reformer who believed in things like the Bible being translated into English. Uh, he didn't believe in, in, in church clerical wealth, um, which, you know, if you think of the Catholic oh, Church radical in this ideas, period. Really radical ideas, but this is, you know, this is years, this is hundreds of years before the actual Reformation took place. And this is very forward thinking. And um, John of Gaunt supported him quite publicly for a time. So he became unpopular with the, with the, well, the merchant oligarchs in London. And he also became unpopular with the church. And then the people in London, he was unpopular there too. But outside of London, outside of that melting pot, he was a very popular figure. Outside the metropolitan elite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so can we can we just uh, talk uh, briefly about his relationship with Geoffrey Chaucer? Because I also find that sort of sure. fascinating. How does he? Yeah, how, how are they mates? Okay, so they go back a long way. So uh, basically, we talk. You mentioned earlier how how John of Gaunt married for, for political gain rather than love, but he did have a great love in his in his life. Um, he was married three times. He firstly was to his his wife Blanche, and this is the we'll all link to Geoffrey Chaucer through this because it's I mean it probably quite neatly links to his wives. Uh, Blanche right. is how he inherited the Duchy of Lancaster because it was through her father um, when he died and the, and the, and the lands went to Blanche, uh, John of Gaunt got those lands and Henry of Lancaster was a cousin of the king who had made a lot of money of war, in war and grant, been granted a lot of land. So then you couple that with a prince taking that, that's how you become super powerful. So he married Blanche and he got lots of land and then Blanche died following child's birth, childbirth in 1368 after, you know, again being pregnant all the time. And um, he then went on to marry Constance. And then uh, after he married Constance, shortly after he married Constance, he embarked on a love affair which lasted decades with a woman called Catherine Swinford, who is very, very popular um, and well-known and well-loved because she was the protagonist in a fiction, uh, fictional historical novel in the 50s. And her life is interesting because it was really through this affair with Catherine that he fathered the line of Beauforts, and everyone's heard of the Beauforts. So sure. Margaret Beaufort, etc. But um, Catherine's sister was married to Geoffrey Chaucer. So he actually became Chaucer's brother-in-law much, much later on in life, but they were also, you know, because he was in, engaged in a love affair with Catherine, they were very much connected. They knew each other. He employed Chaucer. Chaucer worked in the... Um, he worked uh, in the wool trade... Uh, as as a, as a clerk employed by John of Gaunt, I think John of Gaunt placed him in this very prominent role for the crown. And Chaucer wrote what was called the Book of the Duchess. Now, the Book of the Duchess was written as a sort of eulogy to Blanche, Gaunt's first wife, Blanche of Lancaster. And a character in the Book of the Duchess, you open with this scene of um, the man in black who is mourning 
the loss of his love, the loss of his, his lady white. And that is Blanche, this lady Blanche, white. Blanche, of course, the pun on the, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it goes into this sort of very, it's like a dream vision. And the man in black is, is effectively meant to be John of Gaunt. And so Chaucer wrote this in accompaniment to the, this great tomb that, um, that Gaunt was building at the time with the architect Henry Everly, who was another uh, quite well-known artist of the 14th century. So he obviously was aware of Chaucer's talents as a, as a, as a writer. And, and he, he did, he did patronise him, but he, not as much as people might think. Uh, Chaucer was more, more prominently used by Gaunt as a, as a friend and as a soldier as well. So he fought alongside Gaunt and his, his son, uh, Thomas, went with, with John of Gaunt to Spain uh, later on in his, in his career as well. So the family interlinked and Gaunt cared for Chaucer's children. He, he always made sure that all of his children were well-placed for their careers. Uh, you know, his, his daughters, uh, one of his daughters went to a very esteemed nunnery and his sons were always successful and were given prominent positions. So they were great friends. You know, I think it's incorrect to say that, that John of Gaunt paid him lots of money to produce wonderful art because um, that's not right. That's so he wasn't true. sort of a patron in that respect. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. So to Gaunt's legacy, I mean, it, not just through his sort of statecraft and his, in his sort of military campaigns, but it's it's also through these, this enormous amount of children who he has <laughs> by, by his by his wives who end up becoming kings and dukes and 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 you name it. I mean, this this is almost sort of the key to his to longevity today, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I think so. He had children by by Blanche, so the future king. Of England was the son of Blanche, his first wife Henry. So uh, Henry, That's Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that was that was his son and heir, Henry the Fourth, and they had a very close relationship. Um, they had a lot of respect for one another. And that definitely carries through it, and uh, is shown very much at the end of his life. And then he had two daughters, two surviving daughters as well, with Blanche, who were both uh, one of one of whom was was married into Portugal. So you've got that that link there so he's now already got a daughter who's married there um and then he has one daughter by constance his his second wife his spanish wife called catherine who ends up being queen of castile so you've now got another um yes another (laughs) (laughs) and then by catherine he had many many children so i think they had i think they had about five four or five children Beaufort children together and the Beauforts were they were never really connected to royalty apart from being close to Henry the fourth and he was very close to his Beaufort brothers one of them became a cardinal yeah they were sort of placed within the royal circle but they were never royalty per se but they had this this Beaufort title because at the end of his life John of Gaunt married Catherine to legitimize these children that he had and the only time you really see the Beaufort name appear uh, for posterity in history is through Margaret Beaufort because it was through the Beauforts that Henry Tudor could make his claim to the English throne and was considered a threat because he was uh, descended from John of Gaunt. Got it. Because Gaunt, of course, is, is, the, is the founder of the House of Lancaster. So it, it all sort of comes, it ties itself up. All through, you know, it's ultimately all his issue kind of are, the, are some of the main players throughout the whole Wars of the Roses. I mean, this is the point, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So he effectively dominates British English English monarchy and Spanish monarchy 
from this point onwards. And this is why, you know, Catherine of Aragon, when she was married to Prince Arthur, that was like a uniting of distant cousins, so to speak, because they were both descended from John of Gaunt. So, I mean, this is why, I mean, lots of people today make out that they're related to John of Gaunt, don't they? I mean, it, probably, they probably are. Yeah, it's like 42 million people, I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's... We have this thing called the Chalk Valley History Festival and it has a tent called the Plantagenet Tent that if you pay a sort of fee that you, you can go and sit in the Plantagenet Tent. And, and there was this, uh, this chap turned up the, the last time the festival happened who's saying, how do you get into the Plantagenet Tent? Do you, do you have to be, you know, uh, uh, descended from the Plantagenets? If so, can I come in? You know, That's so <laughs> no funny. doubt he was yet another chap who felt that he was probably John of Gaunt was his great, great, great something grandfather. Yeah, I've had quite a few people. Somebody did write to me asking for a book, copy of the book because they were John of Gaunt's ancestor, that I should send them a copy of the book. <laughs> really? Just like, what, a free yeah. book? But because they were, yeah. they were descended from John of Gaunt? Yeah, I was uh, like, I mm, okay, join, said, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, join the queue. Yeah, join the queue. I could I'd be related to John of Gaunt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's incredible. So, so can we sort of sum him up a bit? You've given a really, really lovely picture of the fact that he's this very ambitious man. He's pretty tough. He's pretty ruthless. He's, he, he has got a lot of skills, we might say today. He has a lot of children who go on to do great things. So why is it, do you think, is it just for those reasons that we remember him so many centuries later? It's that influence is still coming through the centuries, isn't it? Yeah, I think through the centuries, it's really his dynastic influence through his children, but also it's the territory that he controlled and it's the territory that he maintained very effectively. So these Lancastrian lands and the castle building, you know, amazing castles like Kenilworth Castle is really worth going to if you want to see the the extent of the money and the power that was um, that John of Gaunt wielded and, and how he put that into art and uh, architecture. I would say that, you know, he was a patron of the arts. He was very forward thinking. He was a supporter of, of science and uh, rational thought. He was also a very European mind, had a very European mindset. He wanted to um, continue this, this idea of Plantagenet expansion into Europe and creating a very strong Plantagenet network. Um, but he was, he was also a very fair uh, magnate, so he looked after his lands in in England, and he made sure that they were well maintained, that they were run ran smoothly and efficiently. And he was very kind. He was always gifting things to his tenants. Um, he was very generous. And I think if we're going to look at him in any negative way, I would say that he had a real temper on him. I think he spoke before he thought a lot of the time, which got him into trouble. Um, and, and was, you know, partly why he was so unpopular in the, in the Peasants' Revolt. And what's interesting about the Peasants' Revolt, his Savoy Palace was actually burnt down during that time because right. it was so unpopular in London. And it was the Londoners that burnt it down. It wasn't so much, you know, these outside forces coming in. It was when the band of rebels in London joined, they went to the Savoy. So, again, it's this idea that he's actually less popular around. I, I, you know, I, the whole area. idea of someone who's, who's less popular in London, but popular uh, you know, uh, around the country generally yeah. is something that clearly resonates today. Helen, listen, we, we, could, talk, we could talk all day about John and I, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to have to end it here. But I, I now feel that I could definitely write a, a, a very decent A-grade <laughs> essay about John of Gaunt, thanks to that. And I know that also I do recommend that people buy your book, The Red Prince, um, Life of John, John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. And that, that is published by One World, I think. Is that right? Yeah and available pretty much everywhere. 
Well, that's it for today. Many, many thanks indeed to my guest, Helen Carr, and many thanks indeed to all of you for listening. Now, that's it for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then do please visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our other podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and lots more. And if you want to connect on social media, then do visit at mailplus. You can catch up with my guest, Helen Carr, at Helen H. Carr, C-A-R-R, on Twitter. And you can catch up with me at Guy Walters. Many thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.